Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Adam Crafton is with us. Coming up, Phil Hay will join to talk Leeds United, whose struggles continued at the weekend, and to assess the challenges ahead next season, with or without Marcelo Bielsa. Our Italian writer, James Horncastle, will be with us uh, to assess the work of Antonio Conte at Spurs so far, and he'll also look ahead to the Champions League with us. It returns this week, Conte's former side, Inter Milan, taking on Liverpool. Let's start with Leeds then. Phil Hay covers the club for The Athletic and is with us now. We record this on a Monday morning, so uh, the Monday morning after the Super Bowl, so before Leeds. Uh, let's deal with your um, your hot take on the Super Bowl, Phil. Uh, you tweeted last night, my only take on the Super Bowl is that back in the 1990s, one of my sister's ex-boyfriends used to follow the Cincinnati Bengals at a time when 0.01% of Europe had any idea who they were. So hopefully... It was worth the wait. Does that mean the whole the whole Hay? I know it's an X, but does that mean the whole Hay family was was going Bengals crazy? No, they did split up um, <laughs> long enough ago for us to have kind of lost touch with him and and the Bengals. But it it was a guy called Michael at um, our secondary school who supported this team that none of us had, had genuinely ever heard of. And and when he would bang on about them as he did constantly. And you looked at the results, which for the Bengals, as far as I could tell for years, were just, you know, appallingly oh, awful. Yeah, yeah. The, the lure and the attraction was impossible to understand. But, um, yeah, I was I was thinking last night, you know, he'll potentially be quite a happy punter tonight, but not as it turned out. <laughs> no, not as it turned out. But he'll have had, he'll have had a very enjoyable season because a season like that hasn't come along for the Bengals for a very long time. Should we talk Leeds? Yes, go on. Your piece then, Phil, on The Athletic. Teams who badly need results are cashing in at Leeds' expense. What does that mean? Well, they've had two games recently that would potentially have pulled them a long way clear of the bottom three in the Premier League. Newcastle at home and Everton away on Saturday. Two clubs who've been struggling badly have have changed managers have been under a lot of pressure themselves and, and more pressure than Leeds, I would say, um, up until this point. And it hasn't been a stellar season for Leeds at all. And, and they've, they've struggled badly, particularly against your, your top four or five clubs, um, Liverpool, Manchester City. But the one thing they have done is that they've taken points and, and taken wins from the teams that they really needed to beat. You'd, Norwich, Watford, Burnley, the, the sides below them. And that's kept them afloat, really, despite everything that's been going on. And I'm sure we'll come on to the, the reasons for why it's been how it has been. They have never been sucked into the bottom three. There's always been breathing space. There's always been a gap. And, and there is still a gap as it stands after 23 games. But these are matches that they would have gone to thinking, if we win this, win this against Newcastle at home, if we win at Everton away, then the gap starts to stretch to the size where, given the form of the teams who are in the bottom three, you'd start to question if actually Leeds could be caught. But, you know, those type of defeats are very much keeping them in harm's way at the moment. What I noticed, particularly on Saturday after the defeat at Everton, 
and and presumably within the Leeds community, this has been there for a while, but I really noticed it myself on Saturday, was real annoyance at Leeds' behaviour in recent transfer windows. And, I, I, and particularly, I think, this last transfer window just gone. Now, that might be because some of the clubs they've been playing recently and up against did have busy windows. Villa obviously had a busy window. Newcastle had a very busy window. But even looking at Everton and going, well, Donny van der Beek ran the show for Everton on Saturday. Were we in for him? And that that seems to be where a lot of the Leeds fans' anger is at the moment. It's a mixture of factors, but it's the perception of results, I think, more than, than anything. It's not unusual for Leeds to have a quiet January, and they did last season. The different, like, difference last season was that they had a quiet January at a point where they were virtually safe already and, and you could have put your house on them staying up. We, we all knew by the end of the window that there was very little chance of them imploding in a way that would, would take them down. And even if they had imploded, there was very little chance of the teams below them getting them getting it together in a way that could have caused them a problem. That's not the case now. In the summer before the season started, it was an intentionally quiet window to a point. They didn't plan to do a huge amount. But what wasn't intentional was the, the failure to sign a, a central midfielder. They went after Conor Gallagher, who obviously went on loan from Chelsea to Palace. He was he was the big target who they didn't get. They spoke about Lewis O'Brien at Huddersfield, but didn't like the, the valuation in the end. So they left that one alone. And, and it meant that they went into the season lacking a player in a position where they needed one um, and lacking a player in an, an area of the team that, that hasn't really been addressed for, you know, going on three or four years now, not not properly. January was strange, though, because they, they signed absolutely nobody. And I was one of the people who thought that they definitely needed to, to add a little, to say the least, in part because of the form, but also because the injuries are just relentless this season. And, and we've almost got to the, the stage now where saying it will be fine when the injured players come back no longer applies because we're, we're not that far away from the end of the season. And you have to ask if there's going to come a time when, when the injured players are all going to come back. And and that allied with a, a very thin squad, which, which is the Bielsa way, has undoubtedly left them short and, and it is problematic. The issue in January was that they, they bid for Brendan Adamson at Salzburg and they went up to £20 million, but Salzburg didn't want to sell him and, and just weren't willing to deal unless Leeds were going to pay fairly vastly over the odds for him. And in offering short-term options to Bielsa, Van der Beek being one of them, Harry Winks as well at Spurs, although Bielsa had said no to Winks earlier um, in the, the previous summer window, so that was never going to be likely. But in offering those options, they found that Bielsa didn't, didn't particularly want them. And, and actually... As strange as it sounds, Bielsa's feeling was that the, the squad he had and the players he had would see them right and, and would be fine. And it wasn't that it was going to turn into a spectacular season, but he was confident, and actually the club were confident at the end of the window, that they would stay up. And I think that's the one thing the window told you, that that underlying confidence was there. Unfortunately, you get a few weeks on and the last game in January, you lose to Newcastle. This game against Everton, which was such a, a crucial fixture, it has to be said that Bielsa got it badly wrong on, on Saturday and, and the team didn't play well. The team weren't really in the game. And it's that same old you know routine of nerves starting to jangle, people getting tense, grievances coming out and, and everything getting a bit fractious. It's quite interesting, Phil, because if you actually look since Lees have been promoted, I think it's around 150 million they've spent and they've not, they've not brought any money in in that period. So I think there has to be a degree of Leeds fans understand that you know you can't just continue to spend beyond 150 million if there's no money being brought in which is why I'd think you know whatever happens in the summer I'd expect someone one of the big name players at Leeds to, to go out because 
that's how you know that's how they have to work at some point the problem as you say is that when you have a, a, co- a head coach that is so picky and so specialist about about the players in the squad and has such faith in the players that he works with it makes it very difficult to recruit for i think but but the other side of that is if they had 20 million they were going to spend on brendan aronson that says to me they could have found a midfielder somewhere and actually just given him to bielsa and said i don't care if you stick him on the bench and i don't see him for six months but we're, we're leaving him there mm. and if you fancy him then put him in at some point because you know you do look at that at that squad and there's a lot of issues with that squad actually I, I think i think their recruitment in the summer was quite weird you know in terms of spending 25 million on dan james who's i think he's getting better but that wouldn't have been my priority for the lead squad when, when i looked at it to get another winger in it would have been to get another another option in terms of bamford and also a central midfielder the biggest worry i have for Leeds is that they can't keep, they, they don't keep clean sheets you know i can look at a roy hodgson team or sean dyche team and to be honest, I think they'll both go down. But I think as a general rule, you back them to get a one nil, you know, three or four one nil wins until the end of the season. Leeds are gonna have to win games three two. That is putting a pressure on the front of the team that, that I'm not sure they're necessarily equipped for. I can't argue with any of that really. I mean there's been well, a lot you of You can come again. <laughs> <laughs> well, well we've, we've we've got time yet and it has been known. <laughs> one of the big lightning rods at the moment is Tyler Roberts versus Joe Gelhart. And the fact that the minutes off the bench in particular are going to Roberts ahead of Gelhart, even though this season the evidence is quite clear that the, the impact sub, you know, the, the best impact sub has been Gelhart with, without any question. It's been overblown, I think, slightly, and it does kind of ignore or obscure some of the, the bigger issues that are in the team. But I went to Villa last week uh, with the intention of, of writing about, you know, number nines and what's going on up front. And 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 I did. But as it went from 1-0 leads to 3-1 Villa in the space of 13, 14 minutes. I was sat there thinking, for all the talk about, you know, centre-forwards and attacking playing goals, and and Leeds have been short of them this season, the the biggest problem is that it is not difficult to get into this team, and and it is not difficult to make Leeds concede, and you saw that again with Everton uh, on Saturday, and that's not a problem uh, as it was last season, when you're scoring at the same rate as you're conceding. But when the goals dry up, as they have this year, they've just not been as as prolific up front. It does become an issue and you do start to look to look vulnerable. I mean, I, I totally agree with Adam that while I thought Dan James was a good signing last summer and somebody else had been after for a long time, it was very obvious that they did need more in midfield. And, and I, I agree that there doesn't seem to be an out-and-out deputy for Bamford either. When when he's out, it's not quite clear who's best for the number nine role. And, and it's it's kind of Dan James at the moment. But in terms of hoisting a player onto Bielsa, signing a midfielder and saying, look, just take him. I don't think, because of how he is, I don't think you can do that. And I think when you start doing that, you're essentially saying, look, we are starting to lose faith in some of what's going on here and we're starting to lose faith in the squad and we don't think it's it's strong enough. We think you need more, even if you don't. I just kind of feel that that begins a slippery slope really to, to a partner of ways. You talked about the, the Roberts-Gelhart thing. So what, what are the noises around Bielsa as regards the Leeds fans? Well, it was quite noticeable, I thought, on Saturday that there was a fair amount of criticism of him, and and he has been criticised quite heavily for the the Roberts Gelhart issue, primarily because Gelhart is a really really rare talent, um, and people want to see him play, people want to see him pushed on. 
there's a lot of talk at Leeds about the, the under-23s pathway and there's been a lot of money put into the, the development squad. And, and therefore, people expect and want to see um, progression. Allied with that, you have the fact that, that Roberts has, has consistently struggled to make a, you know, a really strong or steady impact at Leeds and is 100 games into his career now. Um, and as I say, it has become a big focus of attention. But Bielsa said himself on Saturday that he shouldn't have played um, Matthias Click as a, as a defensive midfielder, that it was a mistake. And you know, Leeds were badly lacking in that area. But there was Adam Forshaw on the bench and it seemed like a very obvious mistake. And the overriding mood, I think, coming away from Goodison was that it was worrying to have seen him get it so wrong in a game that felt so important and a game that, again, could just have opened up so much more breathing space below them. Is there a succession plan for him in place? Yes, there is in the sense that they they know the direction they want to go in as and when he leaves, which is to say that they don't want to decimate the plan. They've got um, academy groups who play and train in much the same way as the first team. So they want some transitional system that means you bring in a coach who basically picks up the best aspects of Bielsa's football and, and works with them. And, and they do keep short lists of, of potential coaches because Bielsa's only ever on a 12-month deal. Uh, so at this time, I mean, it was, it's quite interesting that last week um, the, there were a few reports about potential shortlists at Leeds and quite a lot written about is Bielsa going to stay? Is he going to go? And you can set your clock by kind of early February being the time every year where Bielsa's future starts to be discussed again because he is never under contract for three years, four years. It's always, you know, at, at this time of year, you know that in about three months' time, that's all going to start again. Previously, it, it's been a, a done deal in the sense that Leeds have always wanted him to stay on. But this time round, clearly it's different. The form is different. You know, they, they've struggled in a way that they haven't done previously. And I think they will have to give much bigger consideration to what they do next. They'll also have to wait for him to give them some indication of what he plans because he doesn't tend to, to play his cards early. Um, when it comes to to negotiations, um, so there's a lot that could happen over the the next few months. But they they can't afford to be in a position where they get caught short by him deciding that he's going. There, there are six points clear still of Norwich, um, who are in 18th, and they've got a game in hand. Albeit it's against Liverpool, isn't it? The game in hand. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, it's not it's not it's not a disastrous situation. I think if they could get to the end of the season. 15th, 16th, when you also factor in, you know, look at what happened to Sheffield United last year, where you've got another example of a really good manager in Chris Wilder, who has just found it really difficult in a second season in the Premier League to sustain a style and a consistency of performance. Um, and I actually think, regardless of the injuries, I think Leeds would have struggled a bit more this year. I don't think there was a world where Leeds just, you know, finished 7th, 8th, 9th, as they were doing as they were doing last season. So I think if they can get to 16th and escape that way and then you know shake hands in the summer you can just reflect on an amazing managerial reign. I think to push it to push it again I think it's too tired to be honest to to go beyond this season. I'm starting to wonder that as well and I wouldn't say this is the first time I've I started to wonder that and it's not as if this is the first time it's been discussed among the fan base this season either. I think there has been far more of a, a question mark about whether year 4 is going to lead into to year 5. Um and they they will if if they they stay up and and I, I do think they will but if they stay up the the club will be content with that in that they they were not really aiming for much more from this season when it came to a finishing position it is about second year in the Premier League leading to a third year in the Premier League and opening the door to things like stadium development and, and everything else that comes with, with more income. But I don't think they're going to be able to 
finish this season, stay up and ignore the issues that have arisen over the last few months. I think they are going to have to be pretty honest and, and pretty lucid when it comes to thinking about what's gone on and what, what needs to change. And, and that could be with Bielsa, it could be without him. But I think if you kind of plough on in exactly the same way um, for another season, then you, you're kind of asking for more trouble. Finally, you know, the next three games, United, Manchester United, Liverpool... And Tottenham. So two of those three are eminently winnable. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Leicester, well, Leicester after yeah. that as well. It's potentially a very difficult run, or it's one of those those periods of games that that could surprise you. I, I was saying on you know the positive side of of this streak of four games before Norwich is that Manchester United seem pretty identity-less um, and, and you know, it just seems like constant issues over there, con- constant problems. Liverpool was supposed to uh, to be played on Boxing Day, which, to be quite honest, was a point at which Leeds were going to get absolutely trounced at Anfield. So, you know, what what's the harm? And Tottenham seemed very in and out under Conte. To say that there's nothing in this run for Leeds would be completely wrong, but they are under pressure without a doubt. And I cannot tell whether Manchester United at home, you know, with a crowd for the first time in almost yeah. 20 years is a good game at the right time or, you know, the worst possible game at the worst possible time. It's only this season that the fans have been in for the Premier League and it does feel like they're yet to really have a, a proper performance in front of the fans, aren't they, against against a bigger side. They've not really turned up in quite a lot of home games and is there any sort of sense that the, the players are in some ways actually a little bit struggling to deal with that pressure and expectation that comes with a really big atmosphere at home? I don't think so. I mean, the the only win this season and, and one of the few performances that stands out as being a classic Bielsa performance was West Ham last month in January. That was the first time I could remember coming coming home and thinking that was like watching Leeds as, as they've been for three years. If anything, the, the crowd at Ellen Road have been uber supportive um, this season uh, in periods where it hasn't been going well and, and they've made a difference in, in various games um, thinking particularly Wolves at home, um, but also Crystal Palace, where they, they they dug out late results. And I'm not sure that's that's a factor. I, I just think it th- there's been a sense of it going going backwards and what was working. I think something that was on my mind over the weekend was the things that people have absolutely loved about Bielsa. You know, have have started to become problematic. So. It's always been, you know, last season it was a, a bit of a feather in his cap that it was fight fire with fire and people could take, you know, heavy defeats or lots of goals conceded because of what was going on at the other end of the pitch. But but suddenly it, it's not the same balance and, and so people are, are concerned about it. And it has to be said that they have not, with the exception of Chelsea away, they have not coped well. Um, against the top sides this season. They conceded five at Old Trafford. They were absolutely thrashed at uh, Manchester City. Um, and Liverpool was, you know, 3 0 going on five or six. Um, so that I don't think is where the points are going to come to keep them up. Um, I, th- I think, again, it's going to be your, your matches against the sides around them that will decide where they finish. Four, four games before Norwich sounds like it should be a House Martins album or something. That's, that's what <laughs> struck me of that. Right. Uh, good luck. Uh, enjoy. Uh, Thank Go you. Bengals! See you. See. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hundred yeah, percent. Right. Yeah. I'll be with them next season again. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com/courtside to learn more.
Next on the pod, the Athletics Italian football writer James Horncastle joins us. We'll look ahead to the Champions League in a moment because uh, Inter Milan are taking on Liverpool this week. Uh, but before we talk about Antonio Conte's former side, we'll talk about his current one. It all seems very odd at Spurs at the moment. James, I don't know whether I'm alone in thinking. I can't quite put my finger on on what, what they are or where they're at at the moment. No, and I think Conte can't either. Uh, and I think that's frustrating for him. Uh, I think his comments at the weekend after the Wolves game, not out of character. We've seen him do that before. Um, he likes to play down expectation. Uh, and that often involves talking down the work done by executives. It talks, it's about talking down the, the, the players that he's got. And I was surprised, to be honest, that he took the job when he did um, because, and I think it does kind of come back to this, is that you know, he was interviewed in the summer and he said no, um, which is interesting in and of itself because I remember when he got the Inter Milan job, he said, you know, I will take a job if I've got a 1% chance of winning. That's all I need. And when he didn't take the Spurs job in the summer, I thought that was indicative of someone who thought that Spurs did not have a chance of winning. And and again, yeah, I mean, that interview he gave to Be In Sports yesterday, uh, where he is saying, I'm not used to fighting <laughs> for a top four. Uh, you know, I, I am, I'm a coach who is expected to win things. And he suffers that expectation which is projected on him. He, particularly in his first season at Inter, he was like, you all expect me to win the title because my reputation precedes me. This is what I do. I'm a serial winner. So the idea, I think, that you know, Tottenham may not finish in the top four, and I kind of still think they will, um, just because I think they have a coach who will be able to make more of a difference to his team than, let's say, Ranić will be at Manchester United for reasons, Cristiano being one of them. But, you know, to come in mid-season in the most competitive league in the world, to have a squad that I don't think is particularly adapted to his way of playing, less so than the United job would have been. You know, you look at, you look at the, the back three. I mean, he had to do without Romero, their big signing uh, through the winter. He's back now. Die has been out, but you know, you look at Rodon, Ben Davies playing, you know, I think that's something that's going to need addressing. Uh, in the summer, you look at the midfield, Hoiber and Skip or Hoiber and Winks. Yeah, he's used to playing in midfield three. He doesn't really have someone who is in the Brozovic style or the Pirlo style that he had when he was at Inter, when he was at Juventus. Yeah, I know he played 3-4-3 when he was at Chelsea. But again, um, yeah, even you go back to the squad uh, chapters, I mean. This is, a, this is a team that had a disastrous window in 2019. Yeah, is gone. Lo Celso's gone. Cessignon played at the weekend, but was uh, was substituted midway through the, 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 the first half. With the exception of Kane and Son, you look at the back line, uh, Alderweireld's gone, Vertonghen's gone, and the rest is much of a muchness. They've spent a lot of money for very little buck. You talk about the pressure that he feels on him. So is he is he trying to deflects attention on him then is, I mean is that is that a method of his it is a method it's very interesting for me watching him speak in English and give these press conferences in English because yeah there was there was a lot of reaction to the to, to the interview he gave on, on Sunday in some respects I don't know whether it's because it's a second language it's it's not as inflammatory 
as some of the ones that he would give in Italy. He would really, um, for example, point to ownership um, at Inter not being on the ground, not having a direct relationship with the owner, uh, which was something that he wanted at Chelsea. It's something that he wanted at Inter, almost to go above the sporting director, the executive, and say, look, this is what I need. He uh, suffers from being the guy who is the public-facing representative of the club six times a week, pre-match and post-match press conferences, in a way that you know that Fabio Pradatici, someone who he knows well, yeah, he doesn't have to speak to the media at all, apart from just to say, this is what we've done in the transfer window. Daniel Levy doesn't ever really speak. And, you know, while Padatici would speak before games in Serie A and kind of you know, say, look, this is what we're doing. This is why we've taken these decisions. This is what the expectations are. Uh, yeah, that that's still often not enough <laughs> for Conte. That's the reason he's the highest paid, you know, person probably, you know, not on the playing staff that... The job is you you have to face the media. The job is you have to take the flack for mistakes that might be made above you. The fascinating contradiction with him is that, you know, he is he is a serial winner who doesn't like to talk about winning, uh, at least in the media, or, 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 or which, which he doesn't want the expectation and the pressure that that brings. I don't think anyone at Spurs or a Spurs fan expects them to do anything more than what they're doing now, which is to be a team that, has a chance of getting into the top four between now and the end of the season. I don't think anyone other than Conte himself is projecting anything more than that. Yeah, he alluded to it in his first press conference after the January transfer window. You know, some of the transfer strategy at Spurs has been strange, not just in 2019, but in the summer. You know, you look at Brian Hill, they sign him, talented player, but young, too raw, and he's on loan already. You look at um, what they did in the January transfer window, you know, Bentanko and Kulusevsky. And now Kulusevsky had the chance to join Conte at Inter and Kulusevsky and his people decided to join Juventus because they didn't think there was a position for him in Antonio Conte's system. So as much as they feel that they can change Kulusevsky and Kulusevsky maybe looks at it and think, okay, maybe let's give this a chance, you know, that that's... But yeah, that's a curious decision from a from a technical, technical, tactical point of view. Is it not also, I mean, you'll have a better idea whether he was actually happy with the business in January. Um, and it also seemed quite odd that Paratici, this man of many contacts, appeared to, go, <laughs> appeared to go all over Europe looking for footballers before just returning to his former club and doing two deals that essentially balanced out Juventus's outlay in the January transfer window. The brief on that was was that Paratici and, and Juventus never spoke uh, in, 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 in the negotiations for Bentanko and Kulusevsky. It was all done through intermediaries and that uh, actually the relationship between Juventus and Paratici is actually quite frosty given how uh, how things ended at Juventus as, as, as much as he had a kind of quite warm send-off press conference. But you're right. I mean, if you're, if you're Daniel Levy, and you're thinking, right, I, I hired uh, Paratici as a, a managing director of football to, so I can step away uh, as much as Daniel Levy can possibly step away. I don't think it's, his, it's, it's, his, it's in his nature to do that. If you're looking at that and thinking, okay, you've signed Gil, he's gone. You've signed Emerson Royale. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a feeling that Spurs overpaid for him. You've gone and done a couple of pieces of business in the January transfer window, which you've, you know, you've signed players you've signed before. And there is this critique generally of Italian sporting directors that all they do these days is they watch their own team train 
They watch their own team play, and they don't actually travel and scout anymore. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's sometimes surprising. I mean, the first half of the season was to see Paratici at Spurs games, sat next to Steve Hitchin, the former what head of technical performance, watching every game, kind of remonstrating and and being really engaged in what was what was happening. It's like, hang on, should you be at the game? You know, sh- shouldn't you be away watching? other teams and other players, maybe they're ex- excellent at multitasking uh, and that sort of thing. The person who Levy has recruited to really help on rec- on recruitment didn't therefore have any real role in recruiting players in January. Fabio will have had a, a say. I think it's, it, it's, it's um, yeah, ultimately you look at what happened after the January transfer, transfer window uh, was completed. You know, Steve Hitchin resigned and, uh, and he's on gardening leave. And I think, you know, when they, they appointed Paratici in in the summer, you know, that was always going to be challenging, that dynamic between two people who'd got on in the past, Paratici when he was at Juventus and, and Hitchin when he was at, at, at Tottenham. But, you know, I mean, like, you know, can the two coexist when, you know, Fabio wants, would, would like to run everything? I um, mean, yeah, that's just the way he, he is built. You have it's a very curious dynamic at Spurs on on the face of it when it, you know it, it should work you know if if it had gone in the summer and you said Paratici okay hires his man Conte um, should be the quote unquote dream team and instead Conte didn't come in the summer Paratici's business yeah, the jury's still out on it um, and and whether it turns out to be good or not we'll have to see certainly I think the, the consensus among Spurs fans at the moment is it's left a lot to be desired you know what you're going to get with Conte in all likelihood you are going to win something or you are going to at the very least get into the Champions League but you are going to get someone who will tell you through the media and directly exactly what he wants and he'll make He'll make you uncomfortable in a good way, I suppose, in that he'll make, yeah, it's all in the interest of making the team more competitive and winning, but, yeah, it's uncomfortable at times. The one thing that still sort of strikes me is Conte clearly said no in the summer and then three months, four months later is saying yes. And then I'm struck by Conte's comments, you know, saying I'm not used to competing for the top four. I just, I listen to him and it's like, I don't know what job he thought he was taking. It's like, it's like does he does he realise at times how how absurd it sounds? Like you've taken over a team that's eighth or that was what eighth or ninth in the league that could barely win a game under Nuno Espirito Santo with a squad that needed a huge rebuilding at a club which yes it has funds but isn't going to be able to go and spend like Chelsea or Manchester City. Is there any sense that he maybe rushed into this a little bit in terms of taking a job because he got midway through a season? and missed being involved. I think he's a workaholic. He gets very itchy feet, um, doesn't like to be out of the game. I mean, he was doing kind of punditry on Champions League games for, for Sky Italia. That was a very brief contract. <laughs> if that, a couple of months. The interesting thing is for, for, for Conte, who, who is, I think, extremely smart. And I think his face does fit with the very best managers in the world, Klopp, Guardiola, Tuchel. And his English... I, I'm actually impressed by it. I think his English is much better than some of the other Italians who've come over and worked in the league. But we saw this at Chelsea. I remember one Sky Italia post-match interview he did where he said, uh, yeah, it's, it's just my luck. You know, I, I always turn up at teams in, 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 in moments of uh, carestia, which is like austerity, or you can, even, you can even translate that as famine. And it's like... <laughs> You did know what time you were coming into Abramovich's Chelsea when they were moving to a more sustainable model. And yet he seemed to expect that Abramovich would spend as he did at the very beginning 
of his time as Chelsea's owner. And that just wasn't the case. He's not at Oldham. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think at Spurs, like, I mean, I'm sure he will have done his homework at Spurs um, and he will have looked beyond, wow, look at this incredible billion-pound stadium. Look at this incredible training ground. Yeah, he, he surely can't have judged Spurs on those appearances alone and think, well, if they can spend a billion on the stadium, then they can spend a lot on the uh, on, on the team as well. It's just the other thing, Chappers, and this will lead us into our next conversation, is he walked out on Inter Milan thinking the game was up there, um, that, yeah, the owners were under significant financial pressure. They had to sell players he personally really wanted Hakimi to Paris Saint-Germain and Lukaku. There was this feeling that, you know, with Allegri coming back to Juventus, Juventus would be top dogs again. And instead, Inter, uh, I mean, they got, they lost top spot in the league this year, but there's the, the, this weekend, but there's an expectation that they will still win the league, that they play better football than they did under Conte, that they've reached the round of 16 of the Champions League for the first time in a decade. I wonder if, you know, sort of in September and October, when Inter were really doing very well, but he thought, oh, I, I, you know, I need to, I need to go out and do something, you know, to 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 show that Conte, you know, I'm still, I'm still the man, and uh, and also I just wonder if there are any kind of regrets there, you know, in terms of because Inter they replaced the players that they lost really well, and and they're still they're not as they're not just as good as last year, they feel even better. So what kind of threat will they pose, Liverpool? Well, I think a different threat to to one if if Conte had still been in charge. You know, I mean, as we've seen with with Spurs, you know, Conte likes to play in a low block, have these very carefully choreographed transitions with his forward players. You know, Spurs, it's Kane, Son, and Lucas. At Inter, it would have been Lukaku and Lautaro and Hakimi, and just let them do the attacking. This is Interside is one that plays higher up the pitch has more of the ball, presses. They're not as dependent on their strike partnership as they were last year, which is very much Lukaku and, and Lautaro. Now it's Dzeko up front with Lautaro, but they don't really have a partnership. They tend to play for other players. So I would say this is clearly the best team in Italy on their day. And so a lot of judgments outside of Italy will uh, of Inter Milan will come down to how they perform in these two games. It's unfortunate that... Um, one of their best players, Nicolò Borello, is suspended because he is a player who plays at Liverpool intensity, sets the tone for the team and is their kind of leading assist play- maker this year. Without their probably best centre-back on the side that Salah will be playing, Alessandro Bastoni, I think a lot will depend on on how they fare in this first leg because it's in the side has gathered quite a lot of European experience over the last year, few years. They've been back in the Champions League for, what, four seasons? Um, they've reached the Europa League final under Conte. So they shouldn't be phased by this. And even on that run to the Europa League final, that was at the time of COVID, fans not in the ground. So this feels like the first proper big game for Inter at San Siro in the Champions League, really, since they were treble winners. So there's a lot of weight and expectation on the team, but also kind of realism that, this draw could not have been worse for them. They would have preferred the first draw, which was then kind of botched when they drew Ajax. <laughs> but it's 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 an opportunity for them to to make a statement. I mean, we've got a piece coming out on the Athletic which draws the comparison with when kind of Allegri replaced Conte at Juventus, and Conte had done a lot of hard work ingraining a mentality in the system at Juventus. And and when someone replaced him, it's like a breath of fresh air. There's more freedom freedom of expression. They have that swagger that comes with being champions. 
And we've seen that at, at Inter with Inzaghi. And that Juventus side beat Klopp's Dortmund and unexpectedly went to the final of the Champions League in 2015. And you know, some people think maybe you know this is Inter's time to make an unexpected run to the final. But I would say Klopp's Liverpool at this stage are better than Klopp's Dortmund then, which were very much on the way down. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Oh, so finally, Adam, looks like we're going to end, God, looks like we're going to end on Manchester United. Um, uh, David Ornstein uh, on The Athletic today uh, reporting that United... Um, and um, and this makes complete sense, doesn't it? They don't have they don't anywhere near have enough layers of uh, of management within their structure. They're looking to appoint a deputy football director to work under John Murtagh, their football director, who presumably works alongside technical director Darren Fletcher, who's also in a coaching role. It would appear alongside Ralph Rangnick, who will stay on as a consultant, although he's performing the interim manager role at the moment whilst they search for a new manager, which is being led by the chief executive, I think, Richard Arnold, who has only recently taken over from the departing chief executive, uh, Ed Woodward, uh, and reports are that he might favour Eric Ten Hag, although the players might favour Maurizio Pochettino. So it's good they're bringing some clarity to this situation. Absolutely. I mean, of all of that, what we need is another human being uh, to add into the mix uh, to bring clarity. I think what I'd say in... In Manchester United's defence, slightly, is, you know, the new structure they have is Chief Executive Richard Arnold. We know Richard Arnold's focus has been, over the years, on the commercial sponsorship side, which he's, by all accounts, quite good at. And I think he's taking the view that he doesn't want to be overly hands-on in terms of interfering with the football. So the man they're putting a huge amount of faith in and trust in is John Murtagh as the football director. And essentially, you know, Man United fans have been asking for years for a sporting director. I think that's what John Murtagh is at Manchester United. One of the consistent issues of the last 15, 16 years at, at Manchester United is we rarely get a clarity of vision, communication, the people who run things being front and centre and explaining things to supporters. Um, and, and he seems to be another example of that at the moment. His responsibilities... Uh, I, 
are, as, as I just said, because the communications poor, are difficult to outline. But, you know, I think what we think is he'll have a role in terms of the managerial appointment, he'll have a role over recruitment, he'll have a role over academy pathways and development, and he'll also have, I think, overseeing the women's side of the club as well. So I think their feeling is that there's a little bit too much on his plate at the moment to be doing all of that by by himself. Now, that contradicts a little when you've also got Darren Fletcher there as technical director, and you also have um, Matt Judge there as the transfer negotiator, as well as people in sort of senior academy and coaching positions, and obviously Ralph Rangnick in some sort of future consultancy role. But what they feel, what they feel is that there's not that he's got too much on his plate and therefore needs a deputy as well. So we've we've seen, for example, at Liverpool, Michael Edwards was sporting director, and they promoted Julian Ward to be the deputy sporting director. And now, over time, he's evolved into going to be Michael Edwards' replacement as well. So it's not, you know, th- there's some rhyme and reason to it. But as ever with Manchester United, it's a bit like okay but who is going to make these decisions what is the process who is accountable if it goes right if it goes wrong and i've never seen a club that's just so seems to be run by committee at every at every level i mean even the coaching staff you know under solskjaer it was like a a constant sort of committee by the end of it between whether it's solskjaer and Phelan and uh, carrick and mckenna and like you know you would never hear about pep guardiola's coaching staff to the extent that we seem to hear about backroom staff at Manchester United so yeah they, they, they're bringing someone else in <laughs> sorry if that doesn't bring sort of great clarity um, and excitement to it but uh, you know if I was if I was talking to people at Manchester United I would be saying to them I think it would be in their interests to start to let the world know a little bit who and what Richard Arnold is and what he wants the club to be and who and what John Murta is and what he would like to see, you know, in terms of a plan for the club in three years' time, in five years' time, give the fans some idea, because at the moment they're going from game to game, and you you don't know what you're going to get from half to half, never mind game to game, and, and it's it's creating an environment, I think, between the club and the fans, where I think a lot of fans are very apathetic at the moment. Plenty more on that story uh, across the Athletic. If you subscribe now, you'll get a 33% discount, or you've got to do is head to theathletic.com slash football pod. And now on this feed on Wednesday, Dan Bardell and Flo Lloyd-Hughes discuss the Athletic's investigation into the rise in football fan violence. And I'm back on Thursday with the Business of Sport podcast with Matt Slater. The Athletic.